Listener Advisory. This episode is a hopeful and life-affirming conversation with my friend Rabbi Steve Leader, but our discussion touches on the crushing tragedy of suicide. We can all help prevent suicide. If you or a loved one need help, please see our episode notes for where to find free and confidential emotional support from the National Suicide and Crisis Hotline or simply dial 988 in the U.S. An obituary equals the facts. A eulogy is the truth. Ask yourself what I think is the most important question any human being can ask, which is, okay, this is what I say my truth is. This is what I say I believe in. Am I living this way? Because the the unhappiest people I know are people whose professed values and lived values are divergent. That's a very painful way to live. Welcome to Ye Gods. I'm Scott Carter. My guest today is Steve Leader, Senior Rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple here in Los Angeles. His new book is For You When I Am Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. And in it, he makes the case for writing and then tells you how to do it, An Ethical Will which is a life narrative to leave to your loved ones after you go to what my mother would have called your reward. Steve, a delight to talk with you as always. Thank you, Scott. I'm I'm honored to be with you. I always learn from you whenever we're together. So one of the things I want to do to start is I just want to talk for a second about a remarkable paragraph in the new book, which gave me this instant appreciation of what your life is like and your and, and your career is like, that makes me feel, working in the world of television or theater, makes me feel like I'm in a very effete world where I think the stakes are high. But you list some of the calls you've gotten. You've changed the names, but here are some of the calls you've gotten over a period of time. Steve, Ron just shot himself in the basement. Can you meet us at the hospital? Steve, Carrie died in her sleep last night, and I don't know how to tell the girls. Steve, I need you to testify for me as a character witness. Steve, the coroner is finished, and the funeral is Friday. We can't carry that tiny casket with our beautiful baby girl inside. Will you? And what this tells me is just how close to the primal elements of existence you are at all times. You are on, it's 24-7. In fact, we were supposed to do this conversation last Friday, and someone in your congregation died, and you had to officiate at a funeral service. Right. I don't know how you do it. I know that in the three books I've read of yours, the new one and the two previous ones, I feel like I and many others have received the benefit of the experience of all that you've gone through. And what interested me was in the very first chapter, the first thing you go to is regret. Mm -hmm. Yes. So why did you begin with regrets being the first chapter? You know, when when I sent in the first draft of the book, the editor said to me, how did you come up with these 12 questions in this specific order? They just unfold a person's 
truth. And I half jokingly replied, 15 minutes and 35 years. These are the questions I have honed over 35 years to use when I sit with a family a day or two before the burial, the funeral and burial of their loved one, so that I can get my arms and help them get their arms around this person's story, this person's truth. I used to teach a class at the seminary called homiletics, which is just a fancy word for how to write sermons, wedding addresses, and eulogies. And when we got to the eulogy section of the syllabus each year, the first thing I would do is write on the board, an obituary equals the facts. A eulogy is the truth. And so these questions are designed to blow right past and through the facts of our lives to get to the truth of our lives. And that's why I started with regret, because to answer the question, what do you regret? What is your greatest regret? To answer that question requires the reader to approach the entire book with honesty and humility. And that's the headspace I want the reader in as the reader goes through this series of 12 questions to reveal and assemble their truth, their story. Now, one of the most interesting common denominators about the responses in that chapter. So just for your listeners, the book is structured with these 12 questions. I write an essay about each of the questions and why I think they're important. And then I sent these questions out to an incredibly diverse group of about 40 people. Diverse in almost every way you could imagine diversity. And what's interesting are the differences and the commonalities. And the common denominator for almost all of them when it came to what do you regret the most is that what most people regret most is not something they did. It's something they didn't do. There are two kinds of regrets. In religious terms, we would say sins. In secular terms, we would say mistakes. So for the sake of inclusivity, let's call them the two types of mistakes that people make. There are mistakes of commission, the things we do, and there are mistakes of omission, the things we failed to do, the time we didn't show up, the words we didn't say, the path we didn't take. And the reason this question is first is not only to put the reader in a humble and, and honest frame of mind, but also when someone comes to see me in my office and sits on what you know I call my couch of tears in my office, and they come to speak to me about a regret, one of the first things I say to them in order to sort of triage the situation and, and get things moving in the right direction is I will say, I don't know about you, but I have given up all hope of a better past. <laughs> and it's a very blunt but powerful reminder that our past regrets are not about the past. They're ultimately at their best about the future. None of us can have a better past, but by asking these questions and answering them honestly, we can have a better future. And that's why, those are the reasons why regret is such a powerful way to begin. 
there's another part of this, which is if you're preparing something for someone you love, perhaps a son or daughter, you're also, it's part of your healing process. If you, if you're being honest about your regrets, you may then guide them away from similar actions, which would produce the same regret in themselves. Exactly. Both specifically and generally, specifically the very same mistakes. Yes. Generally pay attention to your potential mistakes of omission, because that's really where the deepest form of regret is hidden. And, and so that's a big, big part of it as well. And of course, answering questions like this, they're not only for your loved ones when you're gone, but they are also presenting you with an image, an MRI of your inner life. And then you get to hold that MRI up to the light and ask yourself what I think is the most important question any human being can ask, which is, okay, this is what I say my truth is. This is what I say I believe in. Am I living this way? Or is my life mostly kabuki? Because the, the unhappiest people I know are people whose professed values and lived values are divergent. That's a very painful way to live. You also talk about people who are well-regarded, and we live in a city of a great deal of achievement and um, a great deal of striving. But you talk about the very common notion of people thinking that most of us, you say most of us feel like an imposter at some point because we are not really who others believe we are. Yes. That the moral of Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter is uh, be true, be true, show if not your worst, then something by which the worst might be inferred. And I and I and you've also you also write about how many in your congregation um, talk to you about how open you are. Yeah. about sharing uh, faults and failures. And I do think there is something so powerful in you doing that that then opens up other people to join you with confessions they would not otherwise make. Yes, and it, it, it really serves a couple of different very deep and important purposes. One, of course, I'm trying to lead by example. Well, if it's okay for the rabbi to have these kinds of problems, then I guess it's okay for me to have these kinds of problems. And if it's okay for the rabbi to need help, then it's okay for me to need help. Right. I'm definitely trying to lead by example, but I have found, and I pull some punches. I don't get up there and bleed all over the pulpit, you know, all day long. But I find that being open and vulnerable myself is an, a partial antidote to my own imposter syndrome feelings. Because I am not pretending, I am not pretending that I don't suffer from an underlying anxiety disorder. I am not pretending that my father's 10-year journey through Alzheimer's disease broke my heart. I am not pretending that emptying my wife's drains after her double mastectomy 
wasn't a powerful and intimate experience for us. I am not pretending that my kids are perfect. I am not pretending that I have no demons. And this also helps me be more authentic. So it, it's both. I mean, some of it is altruistic, and I'm trying to set a good example to bring others some relief. But I'm also trying also to pretend as little as necessary and as little as possible in my role as rabbi, where some pretending is always required and expected. You wrote, I have regretted for years not seeking psychological help sooner to understand and undo the hurtful ways I have often treated myself and others as a result of the harshness of my childhood. That is a huge, huge statement. And I want to explore it a little bit because there's still a notion of stoicism being the honorable way to handle significant problems, mm -hmm. the strong, silent type. I now think of the silent type as, as not strong, but weak. Correct. Yes. Yes. Correct. And look, this is another area in which I've tried to lead by example. I've written about my childhood. I've spoken about my childhood. I have been very open about when I began therapy and why. It was after a, a very frightening car accident and then spinal cord injury and the worst torturous pain I've ever felt in my life. I don't think there's anything like nerve pain and depression and opioids and surgery and more opioids. And I, I really didn't handle my first bullet very well. Uh, and, and I needed help and I got it and I'm still getting it. And I've been open about it because every one of us needs a, what therapists call a holding environment, a, a safe place, a vessel where we can express ourselves, our anxieties and our fears. And I, of course, have been functioning as that kind of holding environment for others for 37 years without realizing how badly I needed it myself. You know, the sages of the Talmud said something really powerful. I won't walk you through the whole story, but the punchline of the story is the prisoner cannot free himself. We become, all of us, imprisoned by trauma, and we cannot free ourselves from that trauma. The prisoner cannot free himself. We need to reach out through the bars of that trauma. And I think we see evidence almost every day on the news of what not attending to our mental health can do to us and, and to the world around us. I literally, yesterday, Scott, I came home. Uh, this is still, this is so hard to talk about. Yesterday, I spent the afternoon with a family whose millennial son died by suicide on Saturday. And the, the, the collateral damage of that mental illness and that final act, peace-seeking act, is so deep and so profound. And it, it, it just demonstrated to me yet again how important mental health is. Yeah. Well, let me go a little bit further to admit my vestigial 
prejudice where I'm coming from. So I rejected at some point in my early 20s the notion of strong, silent type, don't hang your dirty laundry in public and keep it all to inside. I got that that was toxic for me. But I then thought that the admirable approach is cognitive therapy, where I'm, it's almost like I'm putting myself in the dock in court uh, once a week. Uh, sometimes I would go in and plead guilty to a lesser sin. Uh, ra rather than be completely transparent of what I really wanted to get off my chest. Yeah. Um, but I still have a hesitancy. I know there are times where I've had either career reversals or there've been um, personal or family issues where I've had some around me say, you should probably think about some sort of medication now or seeing somebody for that. I have up until this point resisted that because I think, first of all, that very often if I'm down one day, uh, I just have to wait for the turn of, of the wheel of events in life and something is going to be more beneficial the next day and I'm going to be in a completely different mood and, and I can't even believe what I was like the day before. That I know is something that happens in my life. But the other thing is, and this is a quasi-religious notion, I tend, I do believe in God. Um, I don't identify with any religion. I don't belong to any church. But I do believe in God. I do think that God works through us and through our neurology. Mm -hmm. And part of my prejudice to medication is, am I masking? Yeah. Some genuine pain that I should be dealing with in a in an art by articulating yes. the pain and would that be better? Well, I can only speak from my own experience that you can address that kind of pain to a degree. But there are times in life when, in my case, I'll just speak about my own case, where the anxiety became so overwhelming and paralyzing that I couldn't deal with the core wound or the root causes because the volume of the anxiety was just too high. So what I have found is that the medication has turned the volume or the intensity of it down enough for me to address some of those core wounds and issues. Um, I got to a point where I remember saying to my psychiatrist, I don't want to live like this. Like, this is not living for me. This level of anxiety, of paranoia, of fear, I, I, this is not, I don't want to live like this. And I wasn't saying that I was suicidal, but I was talking about something adjacent to drama <laughs> and dramatic uh, and, and so I would, I'm not an advocate for it or, and I'm not opposed to it. It, it's, it really depends on each person, but we can all remove the stigma. And I would say to you, look, yeah. just from a neurobiolo neurobiology standpoint, part of the problem with anxiety is that it's in our DNA for good reason. The reason your DNA 
survived. The, your ancestors survived to provide you with that DNA. And mine is because they were the ones who lived with a high degree of anxiety and therefore survived. That, you know, it made sense to live as if there was a tiger behind every tree or you were dead. What's happened though is now we live in a world where those threats don't exist to that degree, but our DNA is still engineered for that kind of existence. So we're actually out of sync in a way that's extraordinarily painful. At least it was for me. So I, I don't see it so much as changing as much as I do see it as adapting our DNA and our natural processes. And I just know that I've, I am a much better version of myself when I'm not thinking catastrophically 20 hours a day. And I, don't, I could not argue with that. And Want to hear a joke about that? Okay. Okay. The Jewish pessimist says, oh my God, things could not be worse. And the Jewish optimist says, of course they could. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick break now. And when we come back, the good rabbi and I will dig into his formative years and how now so much of his work is helping people make peace with what he calls the dualities of life and how to reconcile with the irreconcilable. More with Steve Leader in just a moment. You are one of the most well-read people who I who I know, and yet you did not come from a background of scholars. You you grew up in Minnesota. Your your dad was in the scrap iron business. Yep. You used to help him as a child. He wanted you to take it over. Correct. So when you said that you wanted to study and become a rabbi, he did not immediately support this decision. No, he was very dismissive. Um, you're right. I grew up in a blue collar working class family. There were seven of us, five kids. Nobody went hungry. We were not poor, but we lived like we were poor. And we did that because of my father's fear of poverty. He grew up on public assistance as a child. And we also lived that way because of this Midwestern idea that the tall flower gets clipped, that the thing to do is to stay one step behind the Joneses. Keep your head down. Don't be overly ambitious. Don't be too big for your britches or something terrible is going to happen. No, I did not come from a scholarly family. My parents were 17 and 18 when they got married. Neither one of them went to college. When did you announce your intention to become a rabbi to your parents? It was my junior year of college. My father sat me down and he said, you know, Stephen, I think you have a couple of career choices to think about. You could go to law school and then run Leader Brothers, or you could not go to law school and run Leader Brothers. Those are those are my two career choices. <laughs> and I said, you know, dad, I think I want to be a rabbi. And his answer to me was, rabbis are beggars. Why would you ever want to do that? Now, this story has a good ending. I was discouraged by that. And I remember my girlfriend at the time, her father, she, she came from money and a more educated family. And I remember her father saying to me, I would be so proud if my son wanted to be a rabbi. The antithesis of my father's perspective, which was he, he was disappointed. And that moment meant so much to me. When he said, I would be so proud of my son, I, I realized that 
my dad's just wrong here. He's just wrong. Now, the good ending to the story is twofold. One, my parents, when I came to Los Angeles, my parents had a home in Palm Springs, which they had for about 25 years for the winter. And every Saturday when I was preaching, they would drive in from Palm Springs, attend the service, and then we would go out to, uh, to lunch. When I looked out into that congregation, Scott, whether there were 200 or 2,000 people out there, all I saw was my father smiling. He was really proud. So that's good ending number one. Good ending number two is that in his own way, my father was right. I do spend a lot of time raising money, which does involve begging. I don't think he realized the order of magnitude or, or, or that anything like my current role was possible in the world, but he wasn't wrong about the, <laughs> the begging aspect. So I, I feel pretty good about the, the end result in both cases with my dad. But originally, listen, when I was 21 years old, that was, that was a painful rejection of my choice. Your father had Alzheimer's for 10 years, and one of the things that struck me in the book is how you took regular snapshots of yourself with him, but after he died, you didn't want those pictures. They, they were not you smiling and, and, and his face next to yours. That was not what you wanted to remember of him. No, you know, the, the, the truth of a disease like Alzheimer's or any form of dementia is that people die twice. My father died first when his brain was no longer the person who was my father. And then a couple of years later, three or four years later, you know, it's such a slow, steady decline. It's hard to pinpoint the precise moment when he was no longer my father. Because there's always some gesture or glimmer that gives you hope. So he died twice. And... They're both painful. One of the blessings of memory, and there are many curses that come with memory. There's a duality to memory. This is, I think, ultimately what most of my work is about, is the dualities of life and how to make peace with them. Because for me, making peace with the fact that something is irreconcilable is a reconciliation. It's, it's a peacemaking. And so I feel this way about memory. One of the most beautiful things about memory is it enables us to time travel back before the Alzheimer's, before the cancer, before the doctors and the needles and the tests and the tubes. That's the beautiful part. And that's the part I want to use to remember my dad rather than his decline. Although there were some very beautiful moments in his decline, not the least of which is that my father and I learned a new language together, which was a language we had never used before. And that was the language of touch. When my father no longer spoke, I would just go and sit in the nursing home. I'd pull up a chair next to his wheelchair. We'd, we'd park ourselves somewhere with a view of the lake. And I just held his hand for hours. And it was beautiful and it was a new language for us. So it's not all grim, but th this is the duality of memory. Memory's beautiful and it really, really hurts sometimes. It's both. My mother's father died when she was four and my maternal grandmother 
this very strong woman who raised three kids in the Depression by herself. But when she died at 96, and at 96 after her birthday, she said, I don't want to eat anymore. I just want beer. It's great. And so great. And and at and at some point a few days later, she began to go and then she died. But but what was great was at her memorial service, nobody remembered the last four years that had kind of been a depressing burden yeah. and curse to all the people who participated in her caretaking. And to her. And to her. And then what happened at her funeral service, at a memorial service, as people began to talk about her, it was the first 92 years yeah. that came back in crystal clarity. And I felt like she she was restored That's in right. all of her glory to everyone who cared about That's her. That's the beauty of memory. And I'll tell you a trick that I used before I walk into a hospital room. I remind myself when I walk in there, if it's a very elderly person, I'm going to look at him or look at her and try to imagine what he or she looked like when they were 25 years old and relate to them as that person, as a fully alive, vibrant, sparkling human being. When I'm standing in line in the grocery store behind someone, elderly woman with coupons, and I could lose my mind, I try to imagine her, you know, twirling in the air, dancing at her wedding. And it, it changes your relationship in a, such a beautiful way. You have a wealth of quotes. We've heard a number here that help you, help you comfort others. Is, is there one in particular maybe not even in any of the books, but just something that you keep going back to, whether it's sacred scripture or secular, that helps you especially get through tough times. Perhaps the one I, I use most internally and externally is that if you have to go through hell, don't come out empty-handed. Make something of these difficulties. You know, this goes back to Viktor Frankl, who essentially said, if you can find meaning in suffering, it ceases to become suffering. It becomes something else. And if you ask most people what the most blessed thing in their life is, you will often discover that that greatest blessing is rooted in some former adversity or trauma. And that's a powerful notion. I, I also think this idea of a valley of shadows it's a very powerful metaphor, and I think quite deliberate. When the poet says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. This valley of shadows interests me because if you think about a shadow, no matter how long or how dark it is, a shadow is actually proof of light. You cannot have a shadow unless the light is shining. It's obstructed, maybe obstructed by disease or obstructed by grief obstructed by physical pain. So loss and grief are love obstructed. It's there. It's powerful, but it's obstructed. But generally speaking, I would say if you have to go through hell, don't come out empty-handed has been a very effective tool for me. And when we think about the history of art, 
when we think about the history of many, many accomplishments uh, that, that, that do credit to our species, mm. that it has been someone who's done exactly what you're saying, which leads me to the very last question. I want you to imagine that you are, you are the benevolent dictator of the planet and you ha only have one ceremonial function to perform, which is you are going to recommend to the world at their request, uh, one work of art. I would teach. And what I would teach is a very um, powerful discussion among the sages of the Talmud about the ninth plague in the Passover story, which is the plague of darkness. I consider this discussion of the sages to be the work of art. So the sages ask, well, what was the nature of this darkness, this plague of darkness? And I won't walk you through the entire argument, but the conclusion is that it was, it was so dark that no one could get up mitachtav, meaning out from underneath himself, up from his or her own place. Now, the sages use that idea to come to the conclusion that the darkness being described was a darkness so dark that the ancient Israelites and ancient Egyptians could not see the humanity in the other. There was no empathy. If I had one word to choose, one power to bring to the planet that I believe would heal so much, it's empathy. The lack of empathy leads to objectification, the objectification of the other, and that is the root of all evil. This is Martin Buber. When you objectify another, it creates the environment for evil to flourish. If, on the other hand, you live with this understanding that if you prick us, we all bleed, that people behave badly because they're wounded, not because they're bad people, that we are all 99.9% .9 genetically identical, that if we can get up and out from underneath our own perspective and feel for the other, I think it will be the end of evil as we know it. Rabbi, you have written that a Hebrew, Hebrew professor told you that a successful rabbi is someone who deeply affects at least three people during the course of his career. Well, you can count me as one of the people. So before you retire, you two to go, two to go, Scott. <laughs> you have already made your quota. Um, you write, you've written, life and love are essentially ab about time. And Steve, I want to thank you for giving me your time today. You are so welcome. Um, I I learned from you. I really do, Scott. You're humble, but I. I I learn from you every time we're together, and I so admire you and appreciate you and our friendship. It means a lot to me. And now for the sermonette, in my homily opinion. I, I was moved by Rabbi Leader's observation that the unhappiest people are those whose professed values diverge most from their lived values. 
and I often find it ironic, that very often the biggest discrepancy that I find in people between words and deeds is with those people who are the most eager to tell me that they are religious. Steve Leader, who walks the walk, is a notable exception. And it's religious hypocrisy that stops me from defining myself by any sectarian label or joining any church. If there's a God, it knows my conscience and my unconscious, which may better reveal the truth of my soul if I have one. I'm aware of the distance between my aspirations and my actions, like Steve and I'm sure many of you. I often feel like I'm an imposter uh, whose mask any god worthy of the name can see through. You know, Sinatra sang, Regrets, I have a few, but then again, too few to mention. Well, my regrets are more than a few. But unlike the protagonist of My Way, the closer I get to the final curtain, the more I think that in my homily opinion... Doing things my way is not the determinative criteria in the worth of my actions. And I know that any final judgment is beyond my petty jurisdiction, and so I try to be at peace at whatever verdict is ultimately rendered upon me. How about you? You got regrets? You can mention them to me anonymously if you'd like at yegodspodcast at gmail.com. Or follow me on all social media platforms at Ye Gods Podcast. Reviews at Apple Podcasts. And until then, be of good cheer.